This podcast is presented by Regions Bank. You're chasing your goals, and it's up to you how you want to get there. Let Regions Bank coach you with financial tips that fit your everyday grind. Visit regions.com slash next hyphen step to learn more. Regions, member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. My guest this week is Heather Dinich, ESPN's college football playoff reporter. We are taping before this week's rankings come out, so we're not reacting to the rankings as much as trying to see where the committee might be headed and playing out some scenarios. We'll also talk about Alabama's Tua Tagovailoa, Not just in terms of what his injury means to the Crimson Tide's playoff hopes, but also about his legacy to Crimson Tide and college football. Heather and I will also get into the question of, do we miss great stories in college football because we tend to view everything through the lens of the playoff? Thanks for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us on Westwood One Podcast, Apple Podcast, just about anywhere you like to get your podcast. Please subscribe, and if so inclined, give us a good review. It helps college football fans find us, and it helps us find more college football fans. And away we go. Welcome to the podcast this week, Heather Dinich, the playoff reporter for ESPN, the great playoff reporter, playoff guru, one might say, for ESPN. Thanks so much for joining me today, Heather. And just so everybody knows, I said it at the beginning in our in the opening, but I will say it again. We are recording this on Tuesday before the rankings come out. So we aren't reacting to the latest rankings. But then again, the latest rankings might not change all that much from the previous rankings, which is one of the reasons why I decided to have you on at this time of the day. So how are you, Heather? I'm good, and I I agree with you. As a matter of fact, I think the top 10 have the potential to stay status quo this week, which is kind of strange because everybody was panicking and asking questions and and freaking out about the injury to to a tongue of Iloa, and and deservedly so, but I, I don't think it changes things much, to be quite honest. Okay, so let's just start there, since you opened the door. Well, and I definitely want to talk about Tua on a couple of different levels. We are going to talk mostly playoff, but Tua is the news of college football right now. But let's start with the playoff aspect, because I think... On Saturday, when he goes down, it almost felt a little callous to talk about how this affects Alabama's playoff perspective. But we all had to do that. Even, you know, we all had to sort of take a step back and say, okay, what does this mean in the big picture? And I am somewhat with you, at least as far as, and we'll find out tonight, but I, I don't know if it has any immediate impact. Though I guess what could it mean if as Alabama plays other games, specifically not against Western Carolina, but against mm-hmm. Auburn? Because people are starting to throw out the Cardell Jones, you know, hey, you know, they, they did this with a third string quarterback back in 2014 and that propelled mm-hmm. Ohio State to a national championship. This is a very nuanced and it's also not territory that the committee, everything is, is still is always somewhat unique, this situation to the committee. So... Where do you think this could go with Tua, Alabama's playoff hopes, and does it really matter? 
Well, I think it is a fair comparison to 2014 Ohio State in that that is how the selection committee will view it. When JT Barrett went down against Michigan with an ankle injury, that's the regular season finale, similar time of year, late November. What is the committee going to do? Same thing. What are they going to do? They're going to wait just like they waited with Ohio State to see what Cardale Jones looked like. So in this case, they wait to see what Mac Jones looks like. Now, if they want to, of course, they could rewind and look at the Arkansas game film, but that's not necessarily a great evaluation because it's a 2-8 and eight Arkansas team, right? They can see what happened in the second half. Mac Jones came in against Mississippi State. Is that a fair evaluation? Probably not, because he's coming in after what was a traumatic incident to the entire team, right? So is that uh, enough data, so to speak, to change their perception of Alabama right now? Probably not. So they wait like they did with Ohio State. The difference, though, where that comparison has to stop is Ohio State that year and Cardale Jones had the Big Ten championship game to really punctuate that playoff resume. Alabama, on the other hand, has Auburn, a three-loss team right now. And with or without Tua in the lineup, they were on the outside looking in. So does it change their position? Not necessarily, but again, is, is Alabama a top-four team with Mac Jones in the lineup? That's the question. That's what they have to figure out. And you can't close the door on them entirely because there are still a lot of things that can happen. Let me pull back from the playoff view of Tua to just talk about what he has meant to Alabama and to college football. Because, I mean, it's a remarkable career when you think that this is a player who was who became maybe the face of the sport before he ever started a game. Like that one half against Georgia in the national championship game made him a massive star, and he had never started a game at that point. And to think what he, how he transitioned and sort of changed Alabama – Maybe in in some ways the DNA of Alabama. Yes, the offense had already changed schematically because of Lane Kiffin, and but what he turned Alabama into is something uh, is just a very different type of team than it had been under Saban for the dynasty years. When you pull the lens back on Tua and think of his career, how do you put it in perspective? It's really remarkable to be able to say, looking back, that he almost single-handedly changed the offense. Um, what he has been able to do with spreading the ball all around the field, um, get rid of the eye formation, throw to four or five different receivers, and just light up the scoreboard, right, so fast. And to be able to highlight so many of those receivers is one of the reasons at the start of this season we're talking about Alabama as a top-four team in spite of a defense that has shown some vulnerabilities, in spite of a schedule that was absolutely nobody. Alabama was in the conversation because of Tua and his receivers, period. And I think um, Steve Young, one of our analysts, had a great quote. He said, it basically, Tua had the ability to combine intuition and physical ability, right? And, and Steve Young called it, quote, the three-dimensional chess in your head which is perfect to summarize what he's able to do. So, and, and you are, you're so right, Ralph, that when that happened, it, it's really felt callous 
to talk about anything but that poor kid and his family and the injury and just you could see the pain on his face and Molly McGrath's report on the sideline of of him clearly audibly hurting but my goodness um I don't think that anybody or anything would take anything away from his legacy at Alabama because he certainly has left his impact there. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate. I mean, you know, he may not have won the Heisman anyway just because Joe Burrow has played so well. Uh, mm-hmm. And not winning the Heisman is not necessarily something to be ashamed of, right? I mean, Deshaun right. Watson, Deshaun Watson didn't win the Heisman. A lot of really great, great college players did not win the Heisman because other great college players stepped up in, in those seasons. I do wonder if you know. I hadn't even thought about this until I'm about to ask you the question. I hope he is a finalist. And I, I don't know if he will be. And I understand why people might, you know, you only have three slots on your ballot. I don't vote. I don't know if you're a Heisman voter. I used to be. But there's a zillion Heisman voters. And you only have three spots on your ballot. So I could understand people saying, listen, I only have these three. And here's a kid who didn't play a bunch of games. And yes, he's a terrific player. But do I really want to deny Chase Young? Justin Fields, Jalen Hurts, all these other incredibly deserving players. But I also could see the other argument saying, listen, this guy was absolutely heading towards being a finalist. He's a wonderful player who's had a wonderful career. And, oh, boy, I would really just like to see him be honored in that way and just going to New York. Uh, I don't know if you've given this any thought, and I don't know if you're a Heisman voter. I know, that, again, there are a lot of them out there. But what are your thoughts on what you would do with a Heisman ballot and Tua? Yeah, I am a Heisman voter, and I hadn't really thought about. And you know, it's funny because I yeah, I'm sorry to drop it on you because I didn't I didn't text you this as a pre as a as a pre question, but it did just pop into my head as we're talking. So let's do this organically. No, it's okay. It's okay because I I think I think about the top five because I turn it into ESPN.com every Sunday night. We do kind of a Heisman watch, and I did not have him in there, but at the same time. I would consider everything that you're saying, just like C.D. Lamb didn't play, and I had him down for the Blitnikoff, and I got a vote for that as well, too. So to me, I think you you have to take the, the whole body of work for this season, right? Um, not the career, but at the, at the same time, everything he's done this season as well is impressive, too. Uh, and, and you look at what he did coming back, from the first injury after the Arkansas game, and it was so impressive in the LSU game, even in the loss in the second half, he was he was very good. So I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I, I would certainly consider it. I wouldn't say, no, I'm not going to put him one of those three slots because of the injury, but let's see what everybody else does too. You know, the interest uh, a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, Brett McMurphy was on, uh, a former ESPN colleague of yours, and he we got into this conversation about how the Heisman would be better off expanding its ballot, going to top five. Maybe you'd get more finalists and you'd open it up to more possibilities. And I, I think, you know, again, the Heisman is very stodgy and very set in its ways. And, and I, don't, I don't think it's looking to necessarily redo anything of the way it's done. But I, I think this is another good example of why it might not be a terrible idea. Uh, it might be a damn good idea, in fact, for the Heisman to do that. Yeah, I don't disagree. My biggest problem with the Heisman is that there are like 900 people voting for it. I don't understand that. 
Yeah, a few less voters and a few more um, people to vote for. You're right, right. right. Less, more players, less people voting. Probably right. a good would be a good formula for the Heisman. I think. Yeah, we've got it all figured out, me and you. All right, let's let's get into some of the other aspects of the of the playoff rankings again they have not come out yet this week but you know they're probably not going to change too much well actually let me start doing the scenario game with you here and the number one scenario that seems to be sort of looming as a oh this could be tricky but then again maybe it's not tricky and that is georgia wins out beats lsu and unbeaten lsu in the sec title game that creates a situation where it would be almost impossible or really hard to avoid putting two SEC teams in. Like just that alone, I feel like could have some ramifications beyond just this year's playoff pairings because there are possibilities that, you know, the Pac 12 and the Big 12 and maybe even the Big 10 or the ACC, that somebody could be left out with a resume that typically would have gotten them in. I agree, but that's the thing. I think it is not complicated if that were to happen, if that's the scenario, <clears throat> excuse me, because I, I, I agree. I think it would be very hard for them to change exactly what we're looking at right now in the top four, which is LSU, Ohio State, Clemson, and Georgia. I think what would happen is it would be Ohio State, Clemson, Georgia, LSU. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've got a lot of angry people on the outside <laughs> looking in. Uh, but at the same time, if LSU follows the script and eliminates Georgia by handing it its second loss in the SEC championship game, then you're looking at all these one-loss teams. You go to the Power Five Conference champions, and then I think we have a great debate for that fourth spot. I think that could be interesting and very fun. But my gut says that it would be Oregon if they wind up winning the Pac-12 conference championship game could be utah who knows we could still be talking about two big 10 teams what if alabama runs the table beats ohio state beats minnesota avenges the regular season loss i'd be shocked if they didn't if they left out a one loss penn state big 10 champ and then you have an 11-1 ohio state sitting there yeah it, 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 there are certainly enough games that will at a couple of them this weekend especially that Penn State Ohio State game to a certain degree I think everybody is sort of leaning that oh Ohio State might be the best team in the country here but they haven't quite played the schedule yet um, mm-hmm. I'm wondering where you fall on that because I, I could see uh, I could see after this week Ohio State was number one in the first rankings LSU jumped them LSU will almost likely be number one in the third that hasn't come out yet but I could also see the committee not that it matters that much, flipping back to Ohio State, if Ohio State treats Penn State the way it has treated all of its other opponents. Yeah, that is going to be an interesting debate for number one because those two teams can continue to flip-flop. My question, though, is how much value is there in a win against number nine Penn State's top-ranked team, right? But personally... My opinion is that I thought that Penn State was too high when they had them at number four. Uh, And if you watch Penn State against Indiana this past weekend, which I did, I I know K.J. Hamler, their receiver, was out. That makes a difference. But you got to be able to run the ball. And I would be surprised if Ohio State doesn't beat Penn State this weekend by two touchdowns, at least. Yeah, yeah. I Um, I kind (laughs) of sense that that might be coming too, (laughs) frankly. 
Right. So, I mean, I kind of feel like there's a reality to that. I'm just not sold on Penn State's offense. I think Sean Clifford has done a nice job. I just don't think he's spectacular. Whereas if you compare him to a Justin Herbert, um, you know, I think what, what Justin has done is he's surrounded by more talent. The offensive line is great. They can run the ball very well, and he hasn't turned it over. I mean, he did last week, but I think all told he's got, like, what, three picks maybe yeah, this year? Yeah. Five. Um, so I, I think that when you look at Penn State, I don't – I guess my question is, is it enough to boost them to number one over LSU? It mm. might be, but I think that depends on your opinion of Penn State. Okay, I want to do a U-turn here for a second because I, I got mm. away from a topic there that I wanted to expound on a little bit. And that is this idea that because I think for the first time, especially if you have that Georgia-LSU scenario play out, for the first time since in a while that I think all of the conferences – could end up going, hey, wh- what are you doing? We, we can't be left out. Like, mm. We have a legitimate argument here that you could end up with five. Because like, I think you always end up with five teams that could go, hey, what about us? Right? Mm-hmm. There's Inevitably, there will be at least one. I, I thought Ohio State had a reasonable argument. I, I didn't really think a bunch of Georgia's argument, even though they were six. Uh, or, right. excuse me, even though they were five. But I thought Ohio State at six had a pretty good argument last year. And I, but I just think that's generally the way this thing is always going to work out. right? The, the four, the, That last spot, there will always be another team that can raise its hand and say, you know, we could have deserved that. And you know what? They probably could have. This year, if that George LSU thing plays out, and you have even Alabama sitting there, and you could have a situation where there might be two one-loss teams in the Big Ten. But even if that doesn't play out and Ohio State just rolls through everybody, and you have Oregon or Utah at 12-1, and Oklahoma or Baylor at 12-1, and that extra SEC team, like, do you see this as being something, that scenario, where now all of a sudden – you have the Pac-12 and the Big 12 take a stance similar to what the Big 10 has taken, which has been a little more aggressive at pushing for expansion. Yes, I could see that because bubbling under the surface last year was more talk about it. Not more action, right. more talk no amongst doubt. the commissioners. And right? I don't know if there would be any more, anything more than talk this year, too, but, I, but right. we are getting closer to the end of the contract. We are. And um, this summer, I asked Bill Hancock how long it took to change from the BCS to the playoff. And he said two to three years. So you would imagine it would at least be two to three years to logistically change this system. Right. So if that happened and we're all at the national championship, all the commissioners are there, all the reporters are there, the selection committee is there, if they all decided this thing needs to be bigger. This isn't right. It would still take, we're talking about January 2020, two to three more years. And at this point, the bowl contracts are in through the length of this contract anyway. So while there might be a unanimous agreement by everyone to say, yep, it needs to change. Too many teams were left out. I still don't think that it would, you could actually make it happen until the end of this 12-year contract just because of 
all of the strings attached to the bowl contracts, the Rose Bowl, the New Year's Six Bowls, all of that stuff is all tied in together. And you can't, even if you want to, you can't change it quickly. Right. Even the, the dates, right? The dates for the games have been set. And right. the idea of working around now that that could be, and again, that's just a very small thing, but there are so many singular stumbling blocks that mm-hmm. in and of themselves all by themselves seem like, Oh, that's not that tough. You can figure mm-hmm. that out. You can, we've talked about this before, right? You can figure all these things out within a vacuum by themselves, but then you start stacking them all up and all of a sudden it's as high as a building, right? <laughs> right. I can't remember if it was you or Dennis Dodd, but somebody else wrote about this last year at this point. It might have been Schroeder. And, you know, the description was you start to pull one string on the sweater and the whole thing comes unraveled. Mm-hmm. That's the perfect description of what would happen here. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll come back and we will get into some more scenarios and maybe we'll look ahead a little bit and and see where, where, again, some other places that this playoff race might be going. You are listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I am talking with Heather Dinich from ESPN and we will be back right after this. This podcast is presented by Regions Bank. You're chasing your goals, and it's up to you how you want to get there. Let Regions Bank coach you with financial tips that fit your everyday grind. Visit regions.com slash next hyphen step to learn more. Regions, member FDIC. And we're back on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm talking with Heather Dinich, the playoff guru from ESPN. She does a great job covering all things CFP, and all things CFP have in some ways become all things college football. It's great for your gig, <laughs> and it's and it's honestly, I'm not just saying that for you, Heather, because I tell people this all the time. Like I cover the sport from a national level. I'm not just the playoff reporter, but almost everything I do, I first think of through the lens of the playoff, because I think that's where most of the interest lies, especially for someone who looks at the sport from a national level. So Mm -hmm. there are, there's things beyond that. But the guys so saw some conversation this week on Twitter. Uh, I think one of the guys from SB Nation wrote an interesting article about do we look too much through the playoff lens and miss other good stories that maybe in the past we would have embraced more? Are we too playoff-focused in college football? And this is asking the person whose job is to cover the playoff. <laughs> I think it's a fair question, and I have spoken to some coaches who are concerned that the playoff has become all too consuming and that it's like basketball in the Final Four, and if you don't make it, you know, it's a, a disappointing season when 10-2 and two is pretty darn good for a lot of teams. Uh, I can only speak for ESPN.com, and I feel like if you go there any day, any given day, you should be able to find one more really good story that's not about the playoff. And I think we've done a pretty good job of doing that. Um, if you go there now, there's a really great story about Joshua Griffin at Colorado State, a walk-on who was an Iraq war veteran, right? And I think those are the kinds of stories that you have to continue to find and continue to tell. I'm working right now on the side on a a really fun story about um, the Army-Navy rivalry game and 
that's just something that I'm doing on the side, and it's it's taking a while, and you know, there's a lot of calls, and I came back from the very first ranking from the college football playoff rankings in Dallas, and the next day I was in Annapolis on, on Navy's campus. So I think as you continue to do those things, it helps balance it out, but I do agree that – it, it's all-consuming. There's no question about it. I mean, the you know, all across all of our platforms, TV, radio, podcasts, whatever it might be, that's the driving force. And um, I think that it's a lot of it falls on reporters like us through, uh, you know, across the country from coast to coast to continue to work hard to find and tell those stories. But I also think that that's part of our industry, too, is how our industry is changing and where are the, the venues and the forums and the platforms to continue to tell those great stories so that people can find them. Right. And I just want to – I'm not doing this because I feel I need to defend you and ESPN. But again, I don't work for ESPN and I take a similar approach, right? We know we are friends with the the National College Football Writers from many different outlets. Mm -hmm. And we don't have any ownership within the playoff like ESPN does because people will Mm -hmm. say, well, ESPN owns the playoff. So, of course, it has to cover it that way. But I don't have any ownership in the playoff. But I still – think that playoff first. And I think Mm -hmm. where it becomes tricky is, you know, college football is still a very much a regional sport. And you look at a a story like Minnesota having this amazing year where it could possibly be in the Rose Bowl. Minnesota in the Rose Bowl is a big damn deal. Like Minnesota hasn't been in the Rose Bowl since 1962. Like Mm -hmm. Indiana possibly getting to what, eight or nine wins um, is a huge deal. Like, I mean, so, you know, Baylor, regardless of what happens with the Big 12 race, Baylor being turned around by Matt Rule and like two, like three years after it hit rock bottom, possibly winning nine or 10 games is such a fascinating story. And I think on a regional level, they are probably still big stories. But I I wonder if on a national level, we sort of lose track of them because we're always trying to wedge them into the playoff discussion. And that's where I think that I, I think, you know, again, and that's not necessarily, I think, something that is a journalism problem as much as I, I think it's just a shifting of the sport in a way yeah. that I, I this is evolution. I think this is the evolution of the sport. But I also wonder how much if we went to Minnesota right now and really talked to like Minnesota fans, most of them would be like, you know, if we make the playoff, that's fine. But like this is just this has been awesome anyway. Right. No, you are you are a hundred percent spot on. I agree with you wholeheartedly. And I, I do that, too. We talk about Minnesota, and I talk about it through the lens of the playoff. And I always preface it with, well, this is really great and program changing for Minnesota, but, right? right. <laughs> and there's not an, enough emphasis on the former, and it's too much on the latter. This is what it does for them in the playoff, right? But you're, you're right. And Baylor, we, we just gloss over them. I do, anyway. I gloss over Baylor because I look at it through their strength of schedule. I look at it through double overtime against Texas Tech and triple overtime against T. TCU, blah, blah, blah. Well, guess what? Baylor's really happy. They're having a great season. Yeah, I think it it also speaks to the idea that really a lot of us clamored for a playoff, a lot of fans and a lot of media. I wouldn't necessarily mind seeing it get bigger, but it does come with a little bit of a cost. 
And part of that cost is we have devalued the bowls. But even that to a certain degree, because people will look at some of these third, I don't even know how many tiers you want to create of bowls. I, I call, I, I tend to break them down into three tiers, but really there could be fourth tier. <laughs> right, but, right. But nonetheless, like it doesn't matter if it's the New Mexico bowl or the citrus bowl or even maybe the rose bowl, right? It's almost about what team, like if you're New Mexico State and you had, I think, had one bowl game in your history, and I believe it was last year or the year before, make a bowl game. That's a big deal and a cool story. But if I'm Ohio State and I go to the Rose Bowl this year, well, unfortunately, that's kind of a bummer for for a lot of Ohio State fans. So it's just changed the way we look at college football. But really, it's only changed the way we look at college football, because I think what we have discovered is there is such a very small amount of teams that really have a chance to win the national championship. And that's always been the case. But I think we have the playoff has heightened the perception of that. Right. Yeah. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. And, you know, the coaches I talked to, I can't remember who it was. It was it was one of the Big Ten coaches, but we were talking about this, and he was like, we went to the Rose Bowl. He was like, we weren't in the playoff, but we were in the Rose Bowl. That means something. It should mean something. It should still mean something. But, you, you know, you're right. It depends on who you are and what your what your goals are. And to be the head coach, and have to look at your team and be like, guys, we we're not in the top four, but we're still we're still a really good football team, and convince them of that, and make sure they know that the season is not a disappointment. How much do you think the conversation we're having plays into the whether you should expand the playoff? Because think about it from this perspective: if I only believe that there are three or four teams that can truly win the national championship every year, maybe there are five. Maybe in a good year, you can make a case for a fifth. Right. Then why expand the playoff? Because conference champions are getting left out and that's what drives people insane. Mm-hmm. And I I agree what you're saying with what you're saying. If there's only probably four or five teams that can get in, why have it bigger than four or five? Um but the commissioners that's their concern is that everything else gets devalued even more than what we're talking about right now. The bowls in the regular season and I don't think – I've never thought that the argument is about who won it or who got in. It's, the argument has always been about who's been left out, who didn't have a chance to at least try for it. And I think that's where – that's the dividing line, right? But at the same time, you have to question, do you want automatic qualifiers in if there's a three-loss conference champion? I mean – if Clemson were to lose in the ACC championship game, do you want to see Virginia or Pitt? Who are, I don't even know who's in the Coastal Division going to win that thing. I mean, is that what you want to see in your playoff? I don't think so. Like last year, if Northwestern would have won, is that who you want to see in the playoff? Probably not. So if you open that door, you open it to those possibilities as well. And I think that's what the commissioners wanted to stay away from. Well, but I would suggest, though, it's a matter of do you want to see it or who has – earned it in some fashion. I think that's one of the reasons why it becomes tricky, right? The whole the whole expansion right. thing becomes tricky because I think a lot of it what you see from folks is just a frustration with the with the subjectivity and it's just not the way we follow sports, right? The right. I mean, we have talked about this like the 
general way you follow traditional sports is you you like a bunch of teams compete for something a bunch of the, those teams you know decide who is best and then that team moves on to something else right so we right. look at college sports that way and think well the SEC will determine who is best of that team of those of that group of teams and they will move on to compete on a different with a different set of teams for another prize that's like a very logical way of following sports but it's just not that way in college football and it doesn't really work very like that that model doesn't fit college football comfortably. So I understand why you'd push back against it. But I think that the subjectivity frustrates a lot of folks. And I think there are some people who would say, listen, I know that team went nine and four, but at least we didn't get a bunch of people in a room pick that team. That there was right. a process by which that team had to earn its way in. And maybe it's not as good as some other team, but it did follow the rules and get in that way. Right. <clears throat> I mean, look, we can have a whole other podcast about changing the entire way this whole thing works because, I mean, at the end of the day, the divisions aren't equal. The conference games aren't equal. If right. you think about it Everything from a logical is perspective, right. it's silly, right? Yeah. Eight games, nine games, I mean, FCS, no FCS, whatever you want to do with it. And then, you know, some... East versus West, they don't have to play this team. They, why do we have to play that team? Like, all of that stuff is not logical <laughs> for truly determining who the best teams are. You can't even determine who the best teams are in your conference if you're outside the Big 12. Right, right, right. And that's, you know, another fascinating thing, if and when this thing does expand, will be what the conference's reactions to determining their champions I don't know if you trash conference championship games because those have a lot of value as far as literal monetary value. But if all right. of a sudden everybody sort of blows up their divisions and comes up with some kind of pods or just forget divisions overall, we're just going to match up the top two teams here. I, I think that will be an interesting piece of the next step of the playoff, which I think inevitably will be expansion. But I, where it trickles down as far as within conferences and within bowls, I think will be fascinating to me. Yep, I agree. I agree. It's inevitable at some point, but I, I just don't know when. I, n- not anytime soon. Okay. Let's, let's say that. That's a safe prediction, I feel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If, if soon is before that contract ends, then no. If you do, that, define that as soon, I'm, I'm, I'm in for the not anytime soon. Before I let you go, uh, another question that I didn't prep you for, but I'm going <laughs> to give you a little time. I'll filibuster here. And maybe you've already looked into this. I want you to look over the next couple of weeks is there a game or two? Because what what could really upset the apple cart here is a true upset, right? A true mm-hmm. upset where a team that is not in the race beats a team that is in the race. And when I say in the race, you know, even in the top fifteen or so, right? Teams like Baylor and Penn State and Minnesota, where if one of not one of those teams, do you see a game or two down the stretch here where you say, you know what? That could be an upset there. That could be a game that sort of changes things because it, it, it's a, it's a quote-unquote bad loss and it changes who plays in a conference championship game where the dynamic of this race changes in some way drastically but for a game that maybe is a little off the radar. Where's the upsets? I think there are a lot. Um, I think you could start this week with Georgia, Texas A&M. They can't lose that game. If they lose that game and then they go on to win the SEC, you got a two-loss 
SEC champ in Georgia, lost to South Carolina and A and M. Yeah, that's that, a messy situation. That's a messy scenario too, by the way. Yeah, yeah. There's that, and then there's um, what happens if Clemson loses South Carolina, which they should not. But hey, guess what? Georgia did. <laughs> Who knows? It's their in-state rival. It's the last game of the season. I would not pick South Carolina in that game, but there's that's that's why they call it an upset, right? Um, anybody in the Pac-12, if Utah or Oregon loses before they get to the Pac-12 championship, that's a game changer because if a two-loss Pac-12 champ then opens the door for Oklahoma, opens the door for Alabama, opens the door for a second Big Ten team. Excuse me, who knows? But I think those are those are three that come to my head immediately. Yeah, it should be fun, and I I also have my eye on Texas. You know, if that Texas A and M game was in College Station as opposed to mm. Georgia this weekend, and Georgia was was in the second part of back to back road games, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a long trip at an A and M team where you know College Station could be a dicey place to play, even though they haven't really shown. They listen. They've already played Clemson. They've already played Alabama, and they're probably going to play. They could possibly play number one LSU. They would, by the way. If LSU remains number one in the AP poll when LSU when it plays Texas A&M, Texas A&M would become the first team in the history of the AP poll to have played number one three times in the same season. Oh my gosh! Yeah, so it's it's a brutal possible schedule, but I do th- I I do think that the Georgia game could have been an interesting one or a more interesting one. If it was in College Station this week, you know, again, I, you know, they haven't played particularly competitive against Alabama or Clemson, but I, I kind of think that they might have one really good game left in them. Right? Yeah, they're just they're kind of tricky. I mm-hmm. just don't know. I don't know. But if there was if there was an upset this week, that's the one that I would pick. Yeah, and and you know, maybe they have it in them when when LSU comes to town because that will be in College Station. LSU's defense has been a little wonky, and uh, that yeah. okay, that will be the very last. This will be the very last question, and then I will let <laughs> you go. Because I get this question. I'm sure you've gotten this question too. LSU's defense isn't very good, and it always seems like the committee has held that against some of these Big 12 teams. Do you think that they should start holding it against LSU, or do you think they will start holding it against LSU? And we'll, I'm not going to dive into the numbers and compare the two. LSU's defense has shown itself to be a little wonky. Yes, fair. Um, and they have called out Oklahoma's defense specifically. Now, granted, um, they, uh, Rob Mullins was asked about it last week. But he specifically said Oklahoma's defense has taken a step back. That's that's one of the reasons that um, they haven't been too impressed with them. But, I mean, it's not that bad. But I feel like if you watch the Ole Miss game, you're like, well, they gave up 37 points. They gave up 41 points to Alabama. It has 400 yards rushing against Ole Miss. 400 yeah. yards rushing. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, no, I think it's fair, but – because of who they have played, um, Florida, Auburn, Alabama, I think that helps outweigh it, the fact that they've, that they've won those games. But Ohio State's defense, whew, man, that's, that's one of those things, those little things in the end on Selection Day that can, that can make that flip. They pay attention to it. Absolutely they pay attention to it, and that, can make them, that, could, that could flip it. Heather Dinich is the great – playoff reporter for ESPN, the guru of the playoff, all things playoff all the time. (laughs) 
texting me. You can't say that without laughing. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, thanks for doing this, Heather. Uh, Good luck the rest of the way. A uh, happy Thanksgiving since we're only, gosh, it's, it's awfully close to Thanksgiving. It's it is. Same awfully... to you, my friend. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, and pleasure, and hopefully we will run into each other in a press box real soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Ralph. And now, three and out. First down. I have a few thoughts about Tua, college football, and the NFL. The NCAA draws a lot of fire for its amateurism rules and prohibiting players from making money off what is clearly a very valuable skill. There is no doubt that these players, all of them, have some monetary value. I'll go back to the example I use all the time. If we magically made it legal, NCAA legal, for all teams to hand out a million dollars worth of bonus money to their signing classes, distributed however the team decides, how much money do you think would be left over? The answer, of course, is not a dime. Every FBS team would use that money to lure the best players they can, and a three-star that is no big deal to an SEC school, would be a huge addition to a Conference USA school. But I digress. College football wants to be college football, not pro football. I really don't have a problem with that. The bigger issue is the NFL taking no responsibility in developing its own players the way other sports do and arbitrarily setting a requirement of three years removed from high school for a player to be drafted. Other sports draft players that are not physically ready to compete at the highest level, but they draft on projectability and have some kind of minor league system set up to develop those players. Or they have roster construction set up in a way that those players could be developed at the highest level without exposing them to a lot of important game competition. Why can't the NFL do this? Because you can tell me that Trevor Lawrence and Tua weren't ready to play in the NFL this year, but if they were available to be drafted last year, they would have been among the first players, certainly among the first quarterbacks taken, solely on projectability. Think back to the days not long ago when NBA teams were drafting high school players. Plenty of them needed time to develop, like Kobe Bryant and Kevin Garnett, but teams were still selecting them very high in the draft because they understood the upside outweighed waiting a couple of years for them to develop. The NFL could do this if it chose. It could expand rosters. It could expand the draft. It could expand coaching staffs to work with practice squad players. Maybe it could create a D-League. The money is there for all of this, but why buy the milk when you can get the cow for free? Second down. I had this weird 24-hour period last weekend where I convinced myself Georgia was the best team in the SEC and was totally going to beat LSU in the league championship game and force its way into the playoff. And then talked myself out of that and decided, nope, this Georgia offense is just not doing it for me. Heather and I talked about LSU's shaky defense, but I asked this. Does Georgia do anything offensively that teams like Alabama and Ole Miss do to stress a defense. Any of you who have listened to me know I am firmly in the camp that great offenses in college football have a big advantage even over great defenses. I would never go into a game thinking an opponent is going to hold LSU down. Auburn did a pretty good job of that, but even the Tigers needed some LSU turnovers and missteps in the red zone to keep LSU in check. I am back on the LSU bandwagon, so to speak, and still wondering what exactly is Georgia doing or not doing 
with that offense. Third down, off the radar this week, it's the time of year when a whole bunch of teams are scrambling to get bowl eligible six wins. The folks who do a really good job of projecting this stuff, guys like Stuart Mandel of The Athletic, Brett McMurphy of Stadium, just to name two, are forecasting enough 6-6 six and six teams to fill all 78 spots, maybe even one or two extra. The Pac-12 has more than half of its teams still trying to get there. Among them, Oregon State and Washington State. Both are sitting at 5-5 five and five, heading into their game Saturday at Pullman. Both have another game left against their in-state rivals. Both teams will be big underdogs in those rivalry games. So this is a big one for the Beavers and the Cougars. Can Oregon State reach bowl eligibility for the first time since 2013? It'd be quite an achievement in the second year for Coach Jonathan Smith. Meanwhile, 2014 was the last time Wazoo did not go to a bowl game under Coach Mike Leach. That's the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, Warren Levinson, for making me sound good. You can find this podcast at Apple Podcasts, on Westwood One Podcast, just about anywhere you like to get your podcast. Please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening, and come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. This podcast is presented by Regions Bank. You're chasing your goals, and it's up to you how you want to get there. Let Regions Bank coach you with financial tips that fit your everyday grind. Visit regions.com slash next hyphen step to learn more. Regions, member FDIC.